Lord, you are our song, you are our confession, you are our life. And we praise you that we can sing the songs of the redeemed in the congregation of the righteous. We come before you in our sin, our weakness and our brokenness in a broken world, but we come as the redeemed. We praise you for this work of Jesus in the lives of your people. And we come now asking that you, by your Spirit, will teach us your Word. And that the Word would go forth in power, not because of human ingenuity, but in power because of the ministry of the Spirit of God. I pray that this Word would mold us and make us as your people. That it would give us hope. I pray for those apart from Christ and ask that the Word would penetrate the darkness and break the stony heart. I pray that You would bring people to saving grace in Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. No matter how hard we try to fix this broken world, we just can't seem to do it. As scientific knowledge and discovery expand our problems grow. As human learning explodes, ignorance multiplies. As agricultural practices and production methods improve, hunger and want spread. As technology advances make life easier, life gets more complicated. As social media connects us to the world, our isolation and loneliness multiplies. As psychology and family planning and social programs and governmental solutions expand, marriages and families disintegrate, the unborn are murdered, and mental health struggles increase. As democracy promises to save us from the death grip of tyrants, it spreads a whole litany of little tyrants who seem intent on taking each other out. And the misery spreads. And we layer over all of this the travails of our planet with forest fires and earthquakes and mudslides and tsunamis and tornadoes and floods and blizzards and hurricanes and drought and infestation and famine. And then there's our bodies. They prove weak. They wear out, they get sick, they succumb ultimately to disease and to death. And then the frustration of daily life. Making money is hard. Paying bills is difficult. Decision making is difficult. Relationships prove painful. Schools fail. Churches disappoint. And then there's deep down inside. I am painfully aware that something is desperately wrong with me. Something I can't really shake. And we suffer waves of emptiness and dissatisfaction with life. There's an unsettled agitation that hangs over us. I want to be somewhere else. I want to be someone else. I want a life that's different than the one that I have. I fantasize about being in another place, another time another person, somebody else's skin. 
Even the most self-satisfied people on the face of the planet suffer. They cause others to suffer. And they eventually die. Well, Christian, Romans 8 has prepared us how to think about all of this. And it teaches us to recognize that there are really only two ways of interpreting these realities. As followers of Christ, we can read suffering under the influence of the flesh or under the influence of the Spirit of God. Driven by the indwelling Spirit, we will see these things in a certain way. Under the influence of the flesh, there are millions of possibilities of how we will seek to interpret and cope with these things. But there is a singular and superior way of interpreting our broken world for believers who are indwelt by God's Spirit. And that is our joy and that is our privilege to think on that today. As we come back to Romans 8 today, remembering verse 16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Coupling that with verse 1, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so, as He bears witness with our spirit that we belong to Him, we have no sense of condemnation as we live in the midst of condemnation, of destruction, and disintegration. But notice verse 17 of Romans 8, as we come back to that, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Notice that idea of suffering and glory. Paul is going to hook those ideas as he moves into this next section and to help us to perceive how to live under and interpret the challenges of life that we face. You know this. Bible reader, follower of Christ, you know this, but let's think on it. The Bible never denies the reality of suffering. It does not run away from it. Nor does it ever instruct us to just get over it, ignore it, endure it with clenched teeth. For those who have been born again, for those the Holy Spirit has come to indwell, there is one glorious way of interpreting the pain of our world. And so again, hooking these ideas of suffering and glory to come, the Apostle stakes his thesis in verse 18. The thesis is this, as you suffer, trust that the glory to come will outweigh all suffering. Verse 18, I consider, that is a word of conviction, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There is sequence here. Suffering will come, followed by glory. There is comparison here. Glory will far outweigh the suffering. Now what does Paul mean by suffering? How do we interpret that? He could mean only persecution. Verse 17, provided we suffer with Christ. We know how Christ has suffered. He has died for our sins. The righteous dying for the unrighteous. He has suffered the hostility of a broken world. So we could look at it that way and say that he's talking only about the suffering where we are persecuted. I'm convinced that Paul does not look at suffering that way. 
Now there's times in context when he's talking only about that type of suffering, but he doesn't look at it that way. I'm convinced that he has in mind all suffering that a believer ever endures. All suffering threatens to suffocate our faith. All suffering is experienced as God's child. So verse 17 does not say, provided we suffer for Him in persecution, but it says, provided that we suffer with Him. And we could put the emphasis there on the with. Not merely suffer for Him, though that's clearly included, but suffering with Him. As we suffer, we do so in fellowship with Christ. That's true of every believer. And it should be true then of all the suffering that we face. We suffer with Christ. We suffer disease. We suffer financial trouble, relational heartache, disappointment and betrayal and broken bones and the like. We suffer with Christ. We suffer, we could say, as Christians, indwelt by the Spirit of God. That's what it means, I think, by suffering, is all suffering that we do as a Christian. What does Paul mean by the glory to be revealed to us? Let's take it in reverse. First, this is a rare instance where the English just isn't really capable of conveying the whole thought in the number or close to number of words that we find here. But I I don't think the translation that will be revealed to us is really the best way to put it. The idea is more that the glory will envelop us. That it will reach out and draw us into its scope and full influence. So I am convinced. I have this conviction. I know on the authority of the Spirit of God that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's going to grasp us and draw us in where we will become part of that glory. And what does that mean? To be glorified is a reference to the end game of our salvation. To be glorified is what will happen when we enter into God's presence and are liberated from sin and from the curse and all of its effects. God is here now with us and among us. But there is a sense when we enter into His unique realm, there will be no sin. There can be no sin in His presence. And one day, entering that presence, we will be transformed, glorified, completely delivered from sin. In our heart, that is in our inner being, and in our bodies. Delivered from all the effects of sin. That day is coming. We will enter into that glory. We will be consumed in that glory. Now, here's what Paul's saying. Take that glory that is to come and compare it with all the suffering that you face here. There's no comparison. That glory outweighs all the suffering. When that eternal day arrives and we enter our inheritance in Christ, all of our suffering in this world will seem insignificant in comparison. Does that make any difference to how we suffer? We see illustrations of this on a low level all the time. For a sports team, the pain of the long season is forgotten when they win that championship. And the confetti is falling from the sky and the fans are cheering and there is this glow of glory 
that comes on a very mundane level, but it's there. And they say, all of the pain was worth this. They might think differently when they're 65, of course, and their body aches every day and they can't get out of bed, but it, it illustrates the point. You hike up a mountain and you know that your pain will be richly rewarded by the vistas which your eyes will feast on at the summit. It's worth the pain to get up there. Because what's up there outweighs the pain. Students endure long hours and late nights for the glory of achieving the degree. There's a satisfaction that I've done this and all the pain was worth it. Now, of course, these illustrations pale in comparison. In many levels, what seemed to be such a glorious end turns out to be not so glorious in this life. But we get that idea of enduring things to get to the prize at the end, to get to the greater glory. That's not, those illustrations might fall very far short, but we realize our life is oriented that way. For us, the journey here is suffering. The end is glory that will overwhelm that suffering. So we ask, and we need to, what are you suffering today, Christian? What trial are you facing? Is it disease or physical weakness? Is it the discouragement of old age? Is it the troubles at work or unemployment? Is it loneliness, discouragement, shattered dreams, difficult marriage, betrayal, frustration, even ridicule for Christ. What is it? Pile that all up together. And it's fluffy, light, ultimately meaningless compared to the glory that's going to suck you into God's presence forever in its power and in its light. I can't prove that by experience. I haven't gone to heaven and seen it and come back and I'm telling you, believe me, it's worth it. But the Apostle Paul, through the revelation of God, says to us, you can know this, Christian. The glory that's coming will outweigh it all. Count on that. Trust in that. Know this. These words come from a man who suffered immense trials. He was whipped to the verge of death five times. He was beaten with rods three times. One day, the Apostle Paul was set outside a community. They picked up stones and they began to throw it, throw those stones at his body. And one stone hit him, and another stone hit him, and undoubtedly somewhere in there he was concussed, and he fell to the earth, and they threw the stones until they piled up over him, and no one thought it possible that he was alive. He got that close to death for Christ. He clung for nearly 24 hours in a cold, stormy sea, to wreckage, got to land and got bit by a snake. He was maligned, he was attacked, he was opposed, he was hunted, he was oppressed, he was burdened with responsibilities, he suffered severe physical ailment as well. And he piled that all together and said, that doesn't compare at all with the glory that is to come. 
Whatever ugly and bad is in your pile, it's small. It will be blown away by the weight of glory in eternity. He said it this way to the Corinthians, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Here we're passing through. Here we're going up the mountain. It's painful. But when we get to the summit, when we get to glory, all of this will pale in comparison. It will not compare. This is Paul's thesis, which he now breaks down into two emphases. The first being that as you suffer, trust that the universe will be renewed. I'm kind of separating these out here on this slide, but we could make it three points. But I think 18 kind of hangs over verses 19 to 25. And he breaks it down now into two ideas. First, trust that the universe will be renewed. This is the glory to come. The universe itself will be renewed. Verse 19, notice it there. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation, that is, I think, the universe apart from mankind. The revealing of the sons of God, that is the future day when all of God's people are glorified. Why does Paul personify the universe as yearning and aching and craning its neck with anticipation for the day of the glorification of God's people? Verse 20, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. When was creation subjected to futility? The futility being this broken world that we inhabit. When did that happen? It's a reference to Genesis 3, 17 and 18, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden. The earth did not sin against God, of course, but the earth was made for man's good and prosperity. So when Adam and Eve sinned against God, their environment was corrupted as was their hearts. In that tragic moment, the world itself became twisted and subject to futility. It cannot right now fulfill the ultimate purposes of God for it. And so this old aching earth we learn here really wants to sing. It wants to be free of natural disasters and the effects of decay and drought and disease. It wasn't made ultimately for what we are seeing. Just today, as the East Coast gets pummeled with another hurricane, as fires continue to burn on the West Coast, should make us happy to live in the middle of the country, shouldn't it? Yeah, just wait till a tornado hits here. But as those things are happening, we recognize this is an evidence of a world subjected to the curse. And that curse is related not to anything the world could possibly do wrong, but to the sin of Adam and Eve. So the universe, in a sense, longs to display the glory of God to the degree that God originally created and intended. We sang of that this morning. Earth sings indeed, but it wants to sing more fully. It's as if its glories that it announces the glories of God 
It's as if it does so with a hoarse voice. It wants to sing with full power. But for now, it remains under that curse until God lifts it in our glorification. On that day, God will liberate creation from the curse just as He once subjected it to the curse. That, I think, is referring Genesis, or, I'm sorry, Revelation 21 and 22 to the new heavens and the new earth that will come. Verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. This helps us know how to look at, how to perceive the world in which we live. We can almost hear that groan, can't we? Creation has been cheated of its role to display God's glory to the fullest. Earth is like a cast of excellent characters who have arrived at the play of their lifetime. And as they start to assemble off stage for the great play, the leading character shows up horribly drunk. And the play is going to be hugely compromised. And all of their skills and all that they've wanted to do has been hurt by this lead actor and his inebriation. That's where the earth is with us. We've brought the curse down upon it. Nothing it did wrong. But the good news is that that groaning is the sort that one hears in the hallways of a maternity ward, not in the hallways of a hospice. That's the sound of the groan. This is not a death rattle. These are labor pains, physical travail that will give way to glory. Everything perceived in this sense, the whole universe itself is moving through the suffering to the glory. And we can know this as God reveals this truth. Thus liberated, the universe will once again sing God's glory at full throat as the new heavens and the new earth, which I believe is this earth, melted down not destroyed in the sense of not existing, but destroyed in the sense that everything that we see is melted down to its basic elements and it is all renewed like silver through a refiner's fire and made new. That day will come. That day is coming. And the way that you suffer and the way that you look at the suffering of this earth is to be influenced in that direction by that truth. And it applies to us as well. Secondly, we need to trust that our bodies will be redeemed. That the universe will be renewed, verses 19 to 22, and verses 23 to 25, that our bodies will be redeemed. Verse 23, and not only the creation. That's where I draw the idea that I think what's preceded is not talking about people, but just the universe. So, not only the creation, but we ourselves as well, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's a mouthful. Let's think about it. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who are the first fruits of the Spirit. That is a reference, the first fruits of the Spirit, a reference to our conversion. When we trust in the message of Jesus crucified and risen for the forgiveness of sins, the Bible teaches us that Jesus washes us, baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. 
There is a spiritual cleansing that takes place as we respond to that gospel message. It it does not come, this baptism, through simply knowing the facts of the gospel. But where God is active in the salvation of a soul, there Jesus baptizes that individual in the Holy Spirit who then takes up residence and dwells within us. All these images to help us understand what is ultimately not fully comprehensible. But He takes our dead spirit, He washes it clean with the presence of the Spirit of God, and taking up residence, we begin to live the rest of our lives seeking to put the Holy Spirit at ease, seeking to respond to the Holy Spirit's desires, coordinating and synchronizing our lives with the Spirit of God. That's the first fruits of the Spirit. It doesn't mean that we get a portion of the Spirit, and we'll get more later. What it means is that we have, through reception of the Spirit of God in this age, we have the first installment of our ultimate salvation. And that will end in glorification. When we are sucked into, subsumed in, grasped by that glory in eternity. We see here in verse 23 that with the first fruits of the Spirit comes this groan of awaiting eagerly our adoption as sons. Does that introduce some confusion? Remember verses 14 and following. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry now, Abba, Father. So we are the children of God, we have been adopted, and yet, verse 23 speaks of a future adoption. And I think the way that we put that together is with that already and not yet idea that helps us understand so much of Paul's writings. It is true now. It's here in reality. You have the Spirit of God, and yet there is a future day of fulfillment. What is it that needs to be fulfilled for us to really fully belong to God? One thing that needs to happen is our bodies need to be redeemed. And so our adoption is real. We are the adopted children of God now. But that is a reflection more of the internal. The external body continues to decay and die, but there is a day in glory when that body will be redeemed. Our body will be remade. It will be reconstituted in ways we can't even begin to understand. It will be resurrected. Our bodies, take this home with you, a little side note, but our bodies are not broken earth suits that we're going to leave behind and never see again. I don't know how it works. I wouldn't begin to try to explain that. But the Bible never teaches that our bodies are going to be discarded. That would be redemption from the body. But what the Bible always speaks about is redemption of the body. The body that we lay into the ground, the body that is consumed in this, on this earth, will be renewed and resurrected. That's the redemption he speaks of. The final redemption of our bodies is coming. We have this confidence. Your body resurrected and reunited with your spirit when Christ comes. 
assuming that you have died. And on that day, who we truly are will be revealed. Right now, our bodies are falling apart like everybody else's, at least mine is. My body doesn't look any better than the neighbors around me. It's just getting as old as theirs. That's not who I am. They don't know it. They look at me and go, this normal average guy looks like he's 56 or maybe older. That's not who I am. That's not my destiny. I'm not going to leave behind a broken earth suit. I'm going to be resurrected. And one day that revelation will be there, will be our experience. We will be redeemed. On that day, who we truly are in Christ will be revealed. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. We were saved with that hope, that is that future prospect guaranteed by God in Christ's resurrection. That future prospect is already there. In this hope we were saved. In the hope, the final hope of our eternal glorification. It says that we were saved, past tense. This means we are redeemed now. We are God's children now. We are saved and indwelt by the Holy Spirit now. But there is a yearning in our bones for the day of completion. There's more to come. And so Paul says in verse 24, Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? You don't have this sense of longing and future anticipation for what's already here. This is something that's not here yet. Your body has not yet been redeemed. If we hope, verse 25, for what we do not see then, we wait for it with patience. So you either have it and you embrace it, or you know its future and you put your trust in it. That's where we are. As we look at the world, it is being renewed in the future prospect. As we look at our bodies, they will be redeemed in the future prospect. We're always looking forward, knowing what is to come. And here then is how we are to think about suffering in the Spirit rather than in the flesh. Walking by faith as God's child means I endure suffering with patient endurance as I wait my final destiny as a glorified child of God. That radically changes the way I suffer trial. We do suffer. We do prove weak. We struggle. We fail. We sin. Life smacks us in the face over and over again. But one indwelt by the Spirit of God has the witness deep in his or her bones. There's another day coming. I'm climbing the hill here. I'm going through training camp here. I'm suffering the trials of this broken, fallen world, but there is another day to come. And in that I place my hope in the trials. That's what it means to suffer with Christ. It's not possible for us to suffer without Christ if we're a genuine believer, but we can go about it under the influence of the flesh as if Jesus isn't there, as if He didn't die, did not rise from the dead, as if the Spirit of God does not indwell us, and as if there is no future. 
The future makes no difference to us. Kind of like that, those kids in the car on the long trip. They have no hope of ever getting anywhere important, right? They're like, are we there yet? This is painful. There's no sense of prospect, no sense that they're ever going to get there. Christian, you can live your Christian life like that. Or we can live in the maturity that says, this isn't the end. This is the process. I know where I'm headed. I know the destiny. And that destiny makes all the suffering worthwhile. Such an orientation to life will distinguish us as Christ's followers. In fact, as we think about evangelism, we think about reaching a lost world for Christ, is this not a beautiful way to distinguish ourselves as gospel believers? If you're at work, you're in the neighborhood, you're with your unsaved relatives, and things go wrong and you respond just like they do, there's no witness. They know life stinks. They know you're part of life and it stinks. They don't see anything different. But what happens when as God's people we say, I will press through this, I will endure this with hope. Remember the command of Scripture? When they ask you for a reason of the hope that is within you, this is that hope. And we need to grasp it and make it solid in us. We might picture the differences of response to suffering in this world by a fisherman on a boat off the coast of Maine in April. He's out there minding his business and fishing and pulling in a good catch and suddenly there's a terrible storm that arises at sea and it threatens to sink the boat. There's no help in sight. There's no way forward. But the unbeliever deals with that storm without hope. The unbeliever knows there's a shore out there theoretically but begins to wonder if there really is one and if they're going in the right direction or not. They begin to circle around in circles doing nothing, going nowhere, saying there's no hope here. I'm going to die. And they just wait for death to take them over. It's certain and it's going to get them. And there's no encouragement at all. The believer with weak faith focuses on the storm. Heads slowly toward shore, but faces the suffering of the winds and waves when sleet with complaining and foreboding self-pity. Why am I in this spot? Is this what happens to the follower of God? I hate this. And the boat slowly making its way toward the shore, but in the boat is nothing but misery and heartache, discouragement and anger and frustration. Because that person's a believer, they're making progress toward the shore. There is an ultimate glory to come. They're handling it the way the world handles it. Assuming they're a true believer. But let's take a believer walking in faith. The focus here in this scenario is on that little light that you can barely see through the storm. But that little light on the shore is the fisherman's house. It overlooks the shore. It is on a cliff and there's a light that glows from inside and he sets his sights on that light. 
He knows that there's great stories to be told when he gets there. He knows that there's a sauna outside where he'll get warmed through the bone as he's now frozen to the bone. And he knows that there's a hot meal that will be there for him and the surrounding of a family that will gather and welcome him in. And the sleet is hitting his face, but he's going three times as fast as anybody else as he's heading for that light. For us, Christian, that light is this revelation. It is the glory that is to come. This broken world will be renewed. In our suffering and trial, there will be redemption. As our bodies fall apart, we know the glory that is to come. We set our rudder and we turn on our motor and we move through the sleet and storm and the waves that beat against our boat to the light. That changes everything. The whole attitude, the whole spirit in the boat is different when we are truly focused there. Oh, how often in Dan's life, is that second focus revealed. I've lost sight of the light. I'm just putzing along and miserable about the sleet and the waves and the danger. We need to lift up our eyes and see that light and say it's there. Home is there. It's coming. Every one of us, somewhere along life's stormy path, will suffer anguish, We will suffer pain coupled with the dull ache in our bones that reminds us all that all is not well in this world. But I may speak to some who are that first boat scenario. You're just circling around. You have no idea where the shore is. You have not come to recognize what Jesus Christ has done to rescue you from this miserable world. You know, it's very possible that God may strip you of all of your goals and dreams, of your possessions, of relationships to which you are placing false hope for security and even for salvation. And if He would do that to help you see what you're not seeing, that would be a mercy. The worst of all is that He leaves you alone and you never see it. But perhaps all that this message will do today is to accomplish in your thoughts a reminder that that day is coming. That it would be a reminder that when you come to that day of misery, you will remember that there is an answer in Jesus Christ crucified and risen. That in flesh, God sent His eternal Son to take on flesh to live in fulfillment of all of God's commands and to die in your place as a sacrificial lamb, taking your death and judgment on the cross. That He rose from the dead in conquest of sin and death and the aching futility that we suffer in this world. You may not be today willing to look to Him. I pray you are. But if you're not willing to look to Him today, there will be a day of suffering that comes. Remember this and come to Him. Maybe the light of that message is beginning to dawn even now. Maybe you're in the midst of all kinds of trouble. 
place your repentant faith in Jesus Christ, crucified and risen for the salvation of sinners, and he will come into your life and steer you home. Plead with God to free you from the penalty of sin and to bring you into his glorious presence. Without that, there's no hope. We just live and we die. But we miss what God has revealed about the judgment to come and the glory to gain through faith in Christ. Believer, what are you suffering? More importantly, the question here today is how are you suffering? It is vital to know this deep in our soul that this broken world and that my body will be redeemed. The glory to come will outweigh all of the suffering. It's vital that we know that and that we trust that. Know that the things that are seen are temporal, but the future inheritance with Christ is eternal. Set your sights on that distant shore and don't take your eyes off it. Yes, the waves crash against your boat and they make the going difficult, but set your course toward home and press on with determined perseverance. Not in the sense of get over it and just be tough. Never that. But in the sense Christ has promised the ultimate victory. In that I put my rest and my trust. The weakest among us, the frailest among us, can have the strongest trust in that promise. It's not for the tough and hardy. It's for those who walk in faith to know the end that will come and to let that revelation of that end influence the way that we handle the suffering and the difficulties of life. To not give up, but to endure. To not pity ourselves, but to find hope in God. To not focus on this world and its difficulties, but to focus on the light on the shore the glory that is to come that will outweigh it all. Oh, we'll have stories to tell. We'll have stories of endurance to tell. But never will those stories be anything but glorious in the presence of our Savior. Set your course home and press on. This isn't wishful thinking. It's the very promise of our Savior that he has secured for his children, and the proof is an empty tomb. I will rise, and we will rise in him, he promises. That is the key of handling suffering in this world. This is the key of understanding how to live and where we're headed. We live with hope. We live with a confidence in what is to come. And that confidence begins to shine its light in a glowing way on everything that we think and do now until we meet the Lord and enter into our eternal home. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these promises. They awe us. They are not deserved, but they are your mercy to us in Jesus So we rejoice in them, and I pray that we would understand how to look at our world as it falls apart and to have hope 
how to look at our lives as they fall apart and our bodies as they fall apart and to have hope. I pray that hope would come to those here in this setting who are the most hopeless, to those who know not Christ as Savior, that they would embrace this hope, not simply as a way to secure the future, but as a way to come into relationship with you forever. For those of us that know Christ as Savior, I plead that you take this word and that it would shape us and that it would keep us. We're facing storms and we realize there's storms to come in our future. Help us to press forward in enduring hope and bring us home according to your promise in Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.